This morning's sermon is really some of what the Lord has been doing in my heart as I prepare for this time of rest from ministry somewhere along the line. I'm not sure that I could pinpoint a time, but there, be, there grew in my heart a temptation that, that worship was work and ministry had lost some of its, some of its extra delight in ministry. And so prayerfully, along with the leadership here at the church, the deacons and Pastor Golden, uh, we considered the opportunity for the refreshment of my soul and my faith through a sabbatical. And as a church, you agreed that that would be a good thing. We receive it as a great gift, and I have about a thousand emotions about it that run through my heart and my mind as I consider next week I am scared to death about it. I'm, Jennifer says that's not scare, it's not being afraid, it's excitement, just, it's the same emotion just turning into excitement. I'm nervous about it, I don't know what all the Lord has for me. I'm trying to set goals and also not set goals, and, uh, I'm just gonna be a mess. So pray, pray that, uh, that I will open our, my heart and my family will open our hearts towards everything that God has for us and in faith. Enter into a season where uh, my faith can be even more energized and encouraged. I will say over the last several months, God has been doing a really wonderful work in my heart. And especially through significant times and people in preparing me for what I think will be a, a good time of just rejuvenation in my delight in God and my excitement to serve him. And so we are beyond words thankful. And on this side of the sabbatical... We'd like to share with you some of those plans next Sunday. Um, and then when we come back, we'd like to report, you know, what goals did we hit and what other things did God do that exceeded our expectations, which is really what I anticipate is on um, July 30th, the last Sunday of July, we'll be together with you then again. And we will um, uh, share with you a mission trip report and join together with you for a lunch together that day and, and reunite um, together. In the meantime, uh, we want you to just enjoy hearing from other men of God, other faithful men, and to minister with one another. And so we have uh, three different speakers that will be joining with us in our pulpit here. Pastor Golden will be taking two Sundays to deliver the word, and then also his brother-in-law, Vanessa's brother, Reston, who always does such a phenomenal job opening the word for us, will be joining with us in July to preach. And then also a pastor of a church plant in Blacklick of Good Shepherd Bible Church named Hunter Sipe, who's been with us years ago, uh, will be joining with us and just does a tremendous job, I believe, in sharing the, his passion for studying God and learning about God. I hope that you'll come with an empty plate and a fork and a knife to dig in every single Sunday. Along with that, then we'll be publishing some different other church activities. So next Sunday, we'll give to you a little bit of a calendar on what, how you can enjoy the summer and enjoy the many other gifts that the church has uh, besides, besides your, your pastor and enjoy the variety of graces that God has for you. So we, we pray that it will be a time of refreshment and encouragement for you all as well. So this morning, I speak from some point of view with knowledge, from some point of view with some experience. 
Certainly, I'd like to speak from the Word of God about rest. But admittedly, I'm still learning it myself. I want to learn more about it um, as we uh, launch out into our sabbatical. So this sermon probably would be far different if I preach it in two months. But it's where I'm at, where, where I believe the Lord has led us as a congregation in our understanding of rest. And um, I want us to gather around the Word of God this morning and consider some truths about rest. And the question I want, to, I want all of us to ask this morning is, what do you do when you rest? What do you do when you rest? How do you answer that question? Well, I think the Word of God, I believe the Word of God has some answers for that. I want us to at least be introduced to some of the ideas of what to do when you rest um, this morning. So join with me in, in Exodus chapter thirty-three, fourteen, And this is the passage that we've been in for several weeks as we've closed out our series on Exodus, man's exit and God's entrance. And this morning the title is Behold Our Rest. Behold Our Rest. 33.14, Moses is meeting with God at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And he says in verse number 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Well, let's pray together this morning. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your names. And this morning as we find one of your names is your rest giver. Then Father, teach us who are busy bodies, busy minded, how to rest in you how to find you even as our rest, not our posture, but you, our presence. Father, open up your word to us that we might behold glorious things. And this morning, encourage every heart who believes upon the word by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Henry Bosch. I think it's stuck. Henry Bosch tells the story this way. It was Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday. March 30th, 1899. Monday, Thursday, as you know, is the day before Good Friday, as we think of Easter on the calendar. Monday, Thursday, March 30th, 1899. 
The English steamer Stella was one of a fleet of almost 240 cargo ships and passenger ships that had just begun to be built and launched out from the harbors of England. Stella. She left Southampton for St. Peter Port in Guernsey. On that day, she was carrying 147 passengers and 43 crew members, almost 200 souls. Many of the passengers were traveling the channel uh, over to the Channel Islands for an Easter holiday or returning home there during the Easter break. On that day, it was a foggy day over the English Channel, and Captain Reeks at the wheel couldn't see the peril that lay ahead of the steamer. At the last minute, Reeks ordered the engines full astern and attempted to turn away from the rocks. Stella scraped along two rocks, and then her bottom was ripped open by a submerged granite reef, while the lighthouse warned of its treacherous banks in the dense fog. Twelve women poured into a lifeboat, but the boisterous sea immediately carried the lifeboat away. Having no oars, and the ship sinking in a mere eight minutes, they were at the mercy of the winds and the waves, and they spent a fearful night being tossed about in an oarless rowboat by a raging, tempestuous sea. They probably would have lost hope if it had not been for the spiritual resolve of one of the ladies named Margaret Williams. She was well known for her work of sacred oratorios and was a famous opera singer in England. Calmly, she prayed for divine protection. But then also, she urged her companions to put their trust in the Lord by singing with them the hymns of comfort that came to their minds from the cathedrals back in England. With her great voice, she became a worship leader in an oarless lifeboat. One can only imagine the sound of her howling voice over the winds and waves of the English Channel on that day, and then joined with a chorus of at least 11 other women. Throughout the dark hours, her voice rang out across the water almost like a foghorn itself. And early the next morning, a small craft came along searching for survivors, as it had been doing all night long. The captain of the helm of this craft would have missed the women in the fog had he not heard the singing on that boat led by Miss Williams. She sang, in particular, from an oratorio, a sacred selection from a series of songs from pieces called Elijah. And some of the words include, O rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. The steering in the, in the direction of her strong voice, the captain of this small vessel soon spotted the lifeboats. In all that day, together, 89 of the 147 passengers were recovered. I'm sorry, 89 of the 147 passengers died and 19 crew of the 43 also died in the sinking. Many others, many of these, were lost at night. But these, in this boat, were rescued 
in the trusting of their souls. In Exodus chapter 33, we are introduced to this idea here that had been repeated throughout the patriarchal promises of God. That God's people would enter into rest. There's coming a day when you and I will enter into rest. What do you think of when I ask you about the word rest? What comes to your mind when, when I say the word rest? Probably images of, of um, like hammocks or a recliner or even a bed or a couch or some sort of solitude and silence. And those aren't wrong. And probably many of you will rest today. The Bible describes rest in, in many different ways. Uh, the Bible describes rest as cessation from the six days of creation from God, for God. Rest from your labor, as in the Sabbath, from Sabbath day. There was even a sabbatic year of the land, given every seven years. Whereas on the first and last days of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was rest. The day of Pentecost was a day of rest. There was rest on the day of the Feast of Trumpets, and there was even rest commanded on the Day of Atonement. In the days of the Feast of the Tabernacles, there was rest. In the year of Jubilee, there was rest. And on certain days of the Feast of Purim was rest. There was rest, as we had mentioned and alluded to, rest in Israel's promised land and rest from, from battling against national enemies of Israel. We even know that spiritual rest is, is described as being offered by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. In Hebrews chapter 4, which we'll turn to in just a few moments, we'll, we'll talk about how rest will be entered into by faith. And then we also see that rest is pictured in Revelation 14 and also Revelation 6 as, as a place where saints are able to rest from their earthly labors. Uh, we all know, we don't need much convincing that there's a need for rest. And the Bible describes that there's a need for rest because there's a need for refreshment from our labor. There's a need for rest because there needs to be a refuge from trouble. There's a relief from anxiety, and perhaps that's part of what you think of. As you've probably read a little and heard some instruction. Pastor Golden did a great job about a year ago preaching about rest and how we need to lay aside our attempts in, to please God and be delighted in a gospel that's called the gospel of done, or that is, it is finished, our justification. There's a rest that is a recuperation from fatigue and exhaustion. There's also a rest that is a time where God reveals certain things to his people. And unless they remain quiet and still, they will not hear or perceive his leading. And there's a rest from the turmoil of life. And Job was said to have rested. But all these are appropriate and we know that the people of God, Israel and Exodus, were striving to enter into the promised land as a place of rest that God was giving to them. And as I considered what God desires for us as Christians and even myself, I, I began to think, how is the promised land a place of rest when what they're about ready to do was less than restful? In, in a matter of time, once Joshua would be entrusted to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, they would have a lot of work to do. 
It looks very little like what I picture heaven looking like. That is, they would have to defeat enemies and they would have to cultivate a, a ground and even cattle. Sometimes they were commanded to destroy whole herds and, and the stocks of, of different ranches. And they would have to build their villages up from the ground because sometimes God would command that the villages would be torn down all the way to the ground like in Jericho. How in the world was the promised land to be considered a place of rest? It sounds to me like there was a lot of work. Sure, you went underneath the whips of the Egyptians, building the pyramids and whatever in Egypt, but, but how was the promised land rest? The land of Canaan was called a, piece of prom, a place of promise, a place of rest by God for His people. Yet what was needed to possess this land was far from restful. So what was it? What was restful about being in Canaan? Jennifer and I just made a quick trip to New England the past couple days. We traveled 2,500 miles. Someone asked me this morning, was it relaxing? I have four children. They were all really good. But we traveled a lot and we did a lot. And actually we worked a lot while we were up there. It was not relaxing, but we didn't go to relax. But well, in the same token, what was restful about Canaan? Wasn't it more restful to be wandering in the wilderness? Having your food provided to you day by day? You didn't have to hardly leave your tent that came to you. No wars, no economy to set up, no government to figure out. The biblical theology of rest is multifaceted. There's many truths about rest. And today our aim is to look at one of the facets of rest which requires intentional obedience. Yes, that terrible word of obedience has a lot to do with rest. While there are other truths about rest that are worthy of the believer's study, such as rest in the midst of anxiety, rest from working for one's salvation, your justification, Rest from physical labor at intervals. Today we want to look at what do we do when we're resting? What do, we, what do you do when you rest? It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? What do we do when we rest? The promise is given in Exodus and then explained throughout the, much of, throughout the rest of scriptures that this will be a place of rest. And later, after Israel had settled into the promised land under Joshua's mighty leadership, there's a midpoint in their, in their rest. In Joshua 21, 44 and 45, listen to the atmosphere, the climate that was now in the promised land as the people began to take it over. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their power. Not one of all, all of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. But still, Israel didn't maintain that rest for really hardly any length of time able to count. For Israel never really truly 100% occupied the land. Because of their lack of obedience, they did not rout, they did not exterminate the Canaanites. They did not obey God and possess the land and occupy it. And so if Joshua w was able to fulfill some part of rest, what remained? 
Well, like in the Christian's conversion, like in when you called upon Christ and received His works for your rest and His ceasing from work to impress God, your ceasing from work to impress God for your salvation, and you wholly trusted in the work of Jesus for your redemption, so too we need, we need to learn what to do when we're resting. If we are resting in Jesus, Jesus has accomplished everything in order to satisfy God's righteous demands. What do we do as we're resting in Jesus? Well, let's be clear about the type of rest we're speaking of today. There are two descriptions of rest that will help us understand when we're resting. First of all, that rest is for the heart and mind, not necessarily for the body. Now, it is in other contexts, but today for today's learning, we're going to look at it is for the heart and mind. Rest for the heart and mind. In Psalm 37, 7, the, the psalmist says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Spurgeon, in in, um, remarking and commenting on Psalm 37, 7, says, Rest in the Lord. And he says, What, where, when, why, how? How do we do this? He says, This is the most divine precept and requires much grace to carry it out. Listen, If you're able to biblically rest, you need God's grace. Our rest, by human determination, will not lead to rest. Not the kind of rest that we need. If any human effort, if it is merely human effort, then it will not be rest. And so, first of all, we recognize that rest must be a gift of God of grace to the heart and mind, not necessarily to the body. Then secondly, we recognize also that rest, for you and I, is not about occupying a land. It's about life itself. For Israel, rest was to to consume, to possess this promised land. But for you and I, we have no physical land, no geographical land to possess. So what is it for you and I to rest? What What are we supposed to possess? What are we supposed to occupy? Well, when Israel eventually took their eyes off of God, they learned that rest wasn't about the land either. When Israel took their eyes off of God, they stopped resting. Their faith was turned to fear, and in so doing, they provoked God's anger, and they forfeited the enjoyment of the land. Listen, the enjoyment of God's promises, listen, is rest. To enjoy God's promise, to enjoy God's presence, is rest itself. The rest, the land, was only going to be rest for the people if they laid hold of it by faith if they, by obedient faith, seized it. A faith that obeys. So this morning, let's look first of all, number one. Obedient faith acquires, acquires rest. Obedient faith takes hold of rest. Let's turn to our Bibles in Hebrews chapter 4. 
Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews, is speaking of a, a better rest for us as believers than the people of Israel were able to lay hold of. And yet there's many similarities. Like Israel, by faith, was supposed to obey God and therefore acquire rest in the promised land. So to rest, rest lays out there for you and I to lay hold of as believers. What are the lessons that we can learn from Hebrews 4? Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes rest for the Christian. Now, to be clear, the writer of Hebrews is writing for, to a, a group of people who are wavering between what it is to work for your salvation and what it is to lay aside your works and believe that Jesus' works was enough. A group of people who were who were working hard to impress God and were wondering what to do with Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews uses this Old Testament imagery and says to believe upon Jesus is to find rest for your soul. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed to enter that rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he who has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, And again, in this passage, he says, and they shall not not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying to David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains, and he repeats what he says in verse number 5, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I noticed quite a few Rests, by the way. In verses 1 through 3, we find a divine rest. A divine rest. And in verse number 4, we find a creation rest. In verse 4 again, and in verse number 9, we find that there's a Sabbath rest, or a rest that remains. In verse number 8, we find that there's a Canaan rest. In verse number 10, we find that there's a redemptive rest. And in verse number 9, we find that there's an eternal rest. Notice that in this passage, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the only way to enter into this rest is by believing and obeying. Believer, by believing and obeying God, you enter into rest. And he's signaling that there's more to this rest than, a, than merely, as significant as it is, merely the promised land. 
So we must receive the promise of God's rest while it is time. He says the promise remains. And that's a present passive, meaning it is caused to remain. Listen, God has, God has caused rest to remain for you. To remain for you. It is the acceptable time, he says. This is the time to enter it. There is a, an open door for rest. This remains for the unbeliever, but it is also something for the believer to enjoy. Some had fallen short, according to verse number 1. Some seem to have come short. That is, essentially, they did not, they did not by faith, believe upon the rest that God had to offer them. This is the same fall short as we find in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They, they fell short. They did not enter into the place of the promised land. The Jordan River stood between them and the promised land. But more importantly, their unbelief. Listen, their restlessness kept them from rest. This might describe some of you who this morning might be listening to this message and you are very busy-minded and very busy-hearted. Your world is full of anxiety. You don't have a Savior, a Rescuer, a Deliverer. You don't have a Joshua and you don't have a Jesus. And so your life is lived in frantic mode. You're wringing your hands. You're finding rest temporarily in anything other but God. You're drinking in different things, whether it's music, entertainment, or even substances, whether it be food or drugs. You're trying to douse your heart that it's on fire because it's restless. And God says to you this day that you will not ever experience rest, not for your body, but for your soul, until you come to a recognition that God is the giver of rest and there's nowhere here on earth that offers rest. You can go on a seven-day vacation. You can go on a seven-year vacation. You can go on a 70 year vacation. But you will never find rest in this world. And it's designed to be that way. Because God will not let you rest with anything other than Himself. And so, you listening to this message today, you need to humble yourself. You need to come to God and you need to recognize that God has a rest to give to you that can begin today so that your soul has a deep-seated peace and trust in God. And that there is no other oasis, there is no other place of rest. And finally, you can lay everything at His feet and know that you are accepted by Him. No longer does your, does your mind, no longer does your conscience, no longer does your heart have to trouble you and flood your soul with thoughts of guilt and shame and regret and sorrow and anxiety. No longer does that need to be a part of your life. It is possible to live without guilt and shame and regret. And every person who has plunged their faith into Jesus Christ's work has found rest. Charles Wesley wrote a song and he says, Lord, I believe a rest remains. In 1740, he wrote this song 
And its words read like this. Lord, I believe a rest remains to all thy people known. A rest where pure enjoyment reigns and thou art loved alone. A rest where all our soul's desire is fixed on things above. Where fear and sin and grief expire. Cast out by perfect love. Oh, that I now the rest might know. Believe and enter in. Now, Savior, now the power bestow and let me cease from sin. Remove this hardness from my heart. This unbelief remove. To me the rest of faith impart. The Sabbath of thy love. And so rest is acquired by faith. But also obedient faith and secondly enjoys rest. Believer, do you enjoy rest? Do you enjoy rest in God? When we enter into salvation, we have already entered into His eternal rest. Now I know verse 10 really speaks overtly about whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But recognize this, that you have already entered rest. If you're a believer here today, rest is something that is your inheritance, yes, to be, to be experienced in time to come when you enter into the celestial gates. But God has already, God has already gifted you with the benefit of rest today. You all are already resting. You are already resting. One, uh, actually several theologians comment that there are three tenses or three time periods of God's rest. One that we immediately think of is that rest that brings us unto salvation. Jesus says uh, in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus is appealing to the to really the flogged masses that have surrounded him, what, what makes them flawed? The Pharisees, by their words and laws, have, have lashed out upon Judea and have said one more rule, one more thing that God requires from you. And they have added the traditions and the requirements of the law and have beaten the backs of the weary Jewish people following Jesus. And so he looks unto them and he, with heart weeping, he says, Oh, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. And they are not weary from working as carpenters and farmers and shepherds. They're weary from the law. They're weary from being, from being cognizant of their guilt and their shame. And Jesus says, stop doing and start believing. Come to me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give rest. And every person who's here this morning and who is a born-again Christian, you know what it's like. You have come to Christ. You've trusted in His finished works. And you're resting. You know you don't have to please God. You can never do enough. That Jesus Christ is your righteousness. That is your salvation rest. But there's another category of rest that theologians point out, and that is especially even found here in Hebrews 4. There's a, a rest of sanctification. It's not only salvation, but sanctification. And this is where we daily continue 
daily continue to enter into the rest by abiding in God. It is the result of resting from the power of sin. Galatians 5.16 even says that when we walk by the Spirit, when we obey the Spirit, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We can rest from our fleshly desires, Paul says. Then there's the rest of what we would call glorification that we find also known to us. That seems alluded to in verse number 10. So there's a rest that's found in salvation, a rest that's found in sanctification, and a rest that's found in our glorification. This sanctification rest is of those who are believers in Christ. You are living in a restful way. Does that characterize your life? Are you living in a restful, not a lazy way, not a way of self-indulgence, that's not what we're talking about, but are you living in a restful way? This aspect of rest is, is that aspect of sanctification, our day-by-day living out of Jesus Christ. Ray Sedman, a preacher, said, speaking of those who have entered salvation, rest by faith, explains that tragically many believers experience breakdown in their Christianity, not referring to a loss of their salvation, but a loss of joy, a loss of the sense of God's presence and power in their lives. And so under the pressures of stress or under the pressures of responsibility, they try to work out their salvation. They, they try to operate out of their works instead of operate out of rest. But here's the truth that's nestled in Hebrews 4 that, that you, you must sit in this morning. The believer works out of rest. The believer works out of rest. Notice in verse number 3 of Hebrews 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. We have entered. It is a daily entering into God's rest. It is the work of God. It is the growth and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does Hebrews 4.3 support this? This is a present tense. For we who have believed not have entered or will enter, but we who have believed enter that rest. This is the idea that we're in the process of entering. We're, we're, we're entering. We're, ent- we're, we're entering. It is a, a continually entering into his rest. It is day by day. It is moment by moment. Even our experience as believers bears this out. For when we, when we are walking in fellowship with the Lord, we, we enter this restful experience of having our hearts united together with Him. Now looking at verse number 9, the writer of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, the rest of God is at a fixed point, but it's also timeless. The rest of God is, is a time in which we have all yet to experience, 
but it is also timeless until we get there. It is both. It is on the horizon, and it is also for every morning and every evening of the Christian's life. It is for the rest of your days. So I think there's two applications this morning that we need to look at. Number one, rejoice that rest remains. Remember, it is caused to be here. It is caused to exist here for you. It is not just on the horizon. It's for your morning and evening. It's for your daily intake. Rejoice that rest is available for you. Rejoice that rest remains. We should rejoice that this rest remains for us and can be tasted now. We need to understand that that this rest can't be emptied or exhausted. Like, when you think about other types of rest, there's always a time. There's always an expiration time of your vacation. It has a beginning and an end. But rest remains. Rest remains. It is not like the Sabbath day, that that one day of rest that ends and then the work week begins. Rest remains, and that tells us that rest can be a present experience. It remains. There is rest there in heaven, but there is also rest near to us too. It is a rest here and now. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. You come, I give it to you. Not in time to come, but... Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and immediately you will begin to feel the rest when you come to me. But secondly, it's an unusual pairing, and this often happens in the truths of following Christ. There is rest in the yoke. Rest in the yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me. Rest comes with the yoke. A daily pursuit of coming to Christ. It is a rest that is full of activity because it's born by a yoke. So Israel was in the promised land. They experienced rest. That didn't mean that they all just set up hammocks between the palm trees. Well, they do. They, they enjoyed the milk and honey. They enjoyed the, the cattle. They enjoyed making for themselves home. It was not restful as they built their cities and villages and occupied the land. But what was restful about the promised land was that God was there and if by faith they would abide in His presence, they would be at rest. Rest came with a yoke. It isn't passive silence. It is even as the Lord who on the seventh day rested and as Jesus who when he finished his work on the cross he rested in the tomb. But this rest is a service in the Holy Spirit. And so looking back over the book of Exodus we have learned that God says I am I still am. I am always going to be enough. Eat and drink. I will give you everything you need. Because I am here. And I know you. And I'm still going to be with you even though I know you. And I will show you. I will show you the way. 
I will show you how to obey. I will help you along the way. I will give you everything you need in order to walk with me. But you need to know this. If you go to the promised land and you think the promised land is rest, then you missed it. Because I am rest. I am all of these things. I am the meat. I am the water. I am all these things. Including rest. So man, God's people, exits Egypt and God enters more fully into their presence. F.B. Meyer commentator and preacher said God's rest has been waiting for man's entrance. And that's because we learn that God is a rest giver. A rest giver. Coming forth out of rest will come our greatest works. Those who are resting, whose hearts are surrounded by trust in God, draw near to Him, produce the greatest acts of worship and service to the Lord. Listen, like Mary, whose heart was at rest in the presence of Jesus. Not like Martha, who was busy and scattered. But Mary, it was her heart that was at rest in Jesus Christ, who then poured out and did some of her greatest work. And Jesus says, no man could have done a greater work than what she had done in anointing his feet, and that the testimony of her faith would be proclaimed anywhere the gospel is ever preached. You might be running on fumes because you're running by flesh. If you feel fatigued, if joy has left you, if it comes intermittently, it's likely that you're working for rest, not working out of rest. Yes, our bodies can take the toll and they can send us all sorts of signals and many of those signals are true. You, very well, it is legitimate that your body may be fatigued and exhausted. But there's no need for the soul to be fatigued and exhausted when God is the rest giver. Behold our rest. Let's pray.